before we get today's episode started, I wanted to tell you guys about an exciting new project that I'm working on. It's called Recovery Revolution Podcast Network. And what that is, is it's a group of people that are working to connect you with the best recovery content possible. It is a collection of different recovery podcasts and resources, and we're all working together to promote each other's shows and, and help you guys get different perspectives on recovery. we got a lot of great shows like Chasing Heroin, The Drunken Worm Podcast, Recovery Soul Food, The One Day at a Time Podcast, The Way Out Podcast, just a bunch of great content that we're all working together now to help each other grow and promote the message of recovery and let people know that it's possible and that there's more to life than just putting down the drugs or the alcohol. So if you guys want more information about that, please check out the links in the show notes. We have a website up as well as a couple of social media profiles. Let's go. Hi, I'm Mike Paddleford, and I recover loud. Recover Loud is a weekly public access TV show dedicated to helping end the stigma of substance use disorder, while also hoping to help save some lives. When we recover loud by sharing stories of our experience, we show others that recovery is possible. By sharing the resources that helped us get there, we provide hope that can help save lives. Recover Loud can be found on our YouTube channel at Recover Loud and in our Facebook page at Recover Loud Maine, with new shows premiering on Thursday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Thought I could, but I'm so proud that I discovered how to live my life again. Controlling my own destiny. I needed recovery. I still need it desperately. Addiction never defined my identity. I recovered loud, here to tell my own story. I recover proud, save a life of like 40. I recovered loud, yeah. I recovered loud. You're listening to Recovery Survey, the podcast that shatters stigmas around different types of addictions and takes a deep dive into spiritual principles. And so I walked into this AA meeting coming from that very strong Catholic background. When the meeting opened with reading how it works, I was ready to run screaming out of there. And when we read the steps, I thought, oh shit. I'm in so much trouble because my view of God is of a punishing, judging God who's always watching me. My guest today is named Peg O'Connor. She is the author of Higher and Friendlier Powers, Transforming Addiction and Suffering. And she's the author of Life on the Rocks, Finding Meaning in Addiction and Recovery. Welcome to the show, Peg. Hi, I am Peg, Peg O'Connor, and I'm an alcoholic, and I'm so looking forward to being on Recovery Survey Podcast with Brett. I'm just, I'm tickled to be here, and I'm grateful for podcasts like this. I, I'm so grateful that you were willing to come on here. I, we were talking about it before the show, but I heard you over on Janine's podcast, Chasing Heroin, and as soon as I finished the episode, I texted her, and I was like, please connect me with Peg, because that was your best episode ever, and I love Peg and everything she shared, and I want to have my own conversation with her. Oh, it's great. And this is what we do. Anytime two alcoholics or addicts get together, it's an opportunity to learn and grow. So I'm looking forward to this. Definitely, definitely. And and I think that a lot of people that are listening to the show are going to relate to your story and your struggles. And I, too, have had 
like this inner struggle with the whole higher power concept. And it's, I mean, I feel like there's two camps. There's people that struggle with it or there's people that come in the rooms and they just, they already have it figured out and they're fine with it. They're like, Oh, higher power, God, whatever. Like I'm good with that. And they just keep rolling with it. And then for a lot of us, we're like, Oh, oh, not sure how I feel about that. Not sure what this whole God higher power thing is, you know? So there's, I see it as two camps and, I'm I'm grateful for people like you that have taken the time to write books and put their thoughts together and help us unpack these difficult conversations. Well, I was certainly in the camp of, oh, God, oh, God, no, God's going to work for me. And if I've got to rely upon a God to get sober, well, it's just not going to happen. Um, and so I've always been interested in really trying to stretch that concept of higher power as a young person. And then later on, I came to realize that that term higher power has a longer history than Bill Wilson. And it was a term that was so expansive and inclusive and inviting. I thought, I can get behind something like that. I can get behind a higher power that isn't God and doesn't do something to me. That's awesome. And and I think part of my struggle too is like, like, when I hear people say stuff like, well, your higher power can be anything. It can be a doorknob. And I'm like, well, why would I want my higher power to be a doorknob? You know, really? I feel like that's the worst example that people give. And I understand what they're trying to say, that it can literally be anything. But I feel like that's just so it's like, why? Why? Why would I make it a doorknob? Like, that makes no sense to me. What kind of power does this doorknob have that it can help me, you know, stay clean and sober? Yeah. And and, and I think that while on the one hand, I want to say it's true, anything could be a higher power, that a doorknob seems kind of a trivial example. I mean, a higher power is something that we may already have inside of us already. And it doesn't enable, it It doesn't do anything to us. It enables us to do things for ourselves. So one of the greatest challenge is each of us figuring out what can work. A higher power works. What can work as a higher power for each of us? And that's for each of us to discover, although that discovery process can be really frightening, particularly against that backdrop of Alcoholics Anonymous, which I, I love and respect, and the people for whom it works, Brett, as you said, the people who come in and they're already square with the conception of God that work for them, I am so happy and, and glad for them. But for those of us who don't, particularly early in recovery, it seems like an extra challenge. Not only am I trying to fend off cravings, not only am I trying to fend off self-loathing and just wanting to drink and crawling out of my skin, you mean I got to go find this higher power? I need to have these profound experiences? What if they never happen? Oh, I'm, I'm destined to fail. And what a terrible message. It's an inaccurate message, but it's a terrible common message. So, you know, my starting point is you can be okay and you will figure out what works for you. And figuring that out is a necessity, but it's a necessity that can be joyful, that can be hopeful, and that can be transformative. Yeah. And and that's so true, especially in that early recovery stage. I feel like or at least I'll speak for, for my journey. I felt like I had to pick a team. Like I, when I got to that point, I felt like I got a, what I did was I I started studying different religions and I felt like I was having to pick which one I thought best fit my life. And, and then I started to 
further along the journey, realize that it's not about picking a religion and then realizing that my higher power has been working in my life all along. And what it was for me was getting my own conceptions and ideas out of the way and just accepting that this power is already here and, you know, just going with that and not trying to, you know, find a religion that works or find whatever and try to make myself fit into this box. Oh, I I think that's right. And it is important to draw a distinction between religion and spirituality. They're related, but they're separate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So oftentimes we think of religion as a social institution that has dogma or doctrine or beliefs and practices, and that individuals can participate in that. And for some people, that will nurture their spiritual side. For others of us, we can be born in a faith tradition, and it is going to squash, it's going to trample the spiritual impulses in us. So I was raised Catholic. I went to 13 years of Catholic school, and I went to my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting when I was a sophomore in college. So I was either 18 or 19. And so I walked into this AA meeting coming from that very strong Catholic background, and when the meeting opened with reading how it works, I was ready to run screaming out of there. And when we read the steps, I thought, oh, shit, I'm in so much trouble because my view of God is of a punishing, judging God who's always watching me. I felt like I was being surveilled. God knew everything I did. And this was a message that the nuns would reinforce for me. And um, I thought, I, can't, I am not a spiritual person. So I decided as a very young person that I'm not a spiritual person. Only later did I start to think about, you know, along with the American philosopher William James, who's wonderful, saying that spiritual impulses are part of our human nature as much as our physiology, as much as our biochemistry. And they can be remarkably fruitful and helpful and, and liberating for us. But if we're trying to wedge ourselves into a prepackaged program, that may not work for us. But the struggle for me was almost giving myself permission to carve out my own spiritual identity. And that felt like, well, who the heck am I to be doing that? Well, who the heck am I to be doing that? I'm Peg. And I am a spiritual person and I live in the world with other spiritual people, but I'm not religious. So I'm heartened that there seems to be a, a larger percentage of the population who identify as spiritual but not religious. And so again, I'll say people for whom a, a faith tradition works, how wonderful. For the rest of us who feel like we are the early terms of the island of misfit toys when it comes to spirituality or religion, I mean, for us to authorize ourselves and to say, these are my spiritual beliefs. Here's how I make good on them. Here's where my spiritual impulses are directed. And one of the ways I want to direct them is trying to live a life where alcohol and drugs don't burn at my center. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love that. The Island of Misfit Toys. That I, I relate to that so much. Like that, that describes my journey so well. It's just like, you know, I, I too was raised in a, a certain religious yeah, pick, background. Pick your favorite right? toy. I, I too was raised in a certain religion. And, and I think part of that too coming into the rooms is we bring those ideas like you were talking about we bring those ideas that we have from our childhood and our upbringing 
and we assume that the God that we knew as a child is the same one that we're talking about when we're reading the steps in the rooms. And that took me a while too, to realize that, you know, this, this idea that I had of God as being this punishing judgmental, uh, you know, just kind of like authoritarian figure that's not the same. Like that's, that was the picture that I had. So that was my stumbling block when I'm reading all these steps on the wall and hearing stuff read in the meetings as I'm picturing that same, you know, that like fire and brimstone God that I had in my mind. And then there was that shift of like, well, they're saying anything can be my higher power. Like let's, let's explore this concept a little bit more and let's figure out what this means for me instead of just going based off of what I've been taught and, you know, this belief in, and I, I hate to say it this way, but I feel like it's the best way to say it. Like this belief in my parents, God. Mm-hmm. And that's so liberating, but it's also kind of frightening because if it isn't that, then what is it? And so to think about the ways in which we have to figure that out on our own. There are no shortcuts to that. Although sometimes I describe myself and I describe people early in recovery as being like hitchhikers. We kind of hitchhike on what works for other people. I mean, I know one of the things I say in AA is, you know, if you're looking for a sponsor, look for someone who's got something that you like or that you want. And I, and I think we do that for a while. And I think that's a wonderful strategy. I mean, particularly early on when there's so much else going on to see, okay, this is someone uses the group, for example, the AA group is the higher power. That's great. You know, that's great. And that may work for you for a while. And I think one of my takeaways is that what works for you right now may not work for you in a month or in a year. We need to be nimble and flexible because if we decide that something must continue to work because it's worked for us in the past, then we become rigid and we might not recognize warning signs because we're so attached or wedded to a view about how things must be. I mean, that that's a, that's a very big mistake to make. And people can make it in long-term recovery too. Um, you know, it isn't just early recovery, but if, if we forget to be kind of proactive with ourselves and we just kind of get into habits that become unintentional and unthinking, we're really not tending to ourselves in the right kind of way. That was certainly my experience. No, no, I, I love that point. And I think that that's such a great point to make that just because it worked at one point doesn't mean that it's going to work forever. And, and the way you were describing that, what came to mind was being closed minded, like not being open minded to any other solutions, to any other way of doing things. And I feel like I've been on that journey myself in recovery here lately where I'm realizing that the things that I've done for the last, you know, I've been in recovery now for about 10 years and I have currently just over eight years of complete abstinence, like continuous abstinence. And I'm beginning to realize that some of the things that I've done aren't necessarily they are, they aren't really lining up with with my life at this point because my life looks so much different than it did when I first got into recovery. Mm-hmm. When I first got into recovery, I just got out of jail. I had moved back home with my parents. I was looking for a job. I was on probation, like all these circumstances. And now fast forward to eight years later and 
I have a house. I have a wife. I have two kids. I have a career. You know, my life situation is different than it was then. And that's not to say that it couldn't work, but I can't go to two or three meetings a day like I did in the beginning when I was unemployed and had nothing going on in my life. It's just not feasible for me to get to three meetings a day with all these responsibilities, but that doesn't mean that I need to cut out meetings completely, but you know, it just looks different today than it did then. And I, I understand that now, but there was a little period of time where I judged myself and had this thought of like, I'm failing or I'm going to relapse or something terrible is going to happen because I'm not doing what I always did. Oh, right. Oh, right. And, and I think one of the things that, that, I certainly lost track of is that I'm not the same person I was. Right. So, you know, I sobered up as a young person. I, I was just 22 and you can't see me, but I have all white hair now. So I'm, I'm almost 58. I was going to say, you, you don't look a day over 23. There you go. Thank you. Thank you. I'm a different person now. And I have grown in many ways. My interests have changed. My life circumstances have changed. My relationships have changed. So why wouldn't my relationship to my recovery need to change? Arguably one of the most important relationships in my life, but it's exactly the one that we stop tending to in that proactive kind of way. And, and that's the danger. So I, I describe cravings in long-term sobriety as being different from maybe what um, people experience when they are just getting sober. So uh, two views of cravings. One is like cravings are like a mugger, particularly early on. You're just walking along, minding your own business, and then boom, something flattens you out of the blue. You maybe had an inkling that there was danger, but you just feel knocked over. That's sort of more typical of people newly sober, new in recovery. And then there's what I call the, the long con craving. So it's kind of like a Ponzi scheme. So the long con craving looks like this. Look, look at everything I have in my life now. I've got a loving partner. I have kids. I have a great dog. I've got a career I love. I mean, everything really is coming up aces with me. And, you know, so maybe I could drink. I'm not that same person anymore. And I don't do those things. And I have come so far that, you know, maybe I could continue to have it all, but also get to drink or in, in, enjoy a, you know, and enjoy a joint every so often. And long-term, long-con cravings work because we become convinced that someone like ourselves wouldn't relapse. I'm not mm -hmm. going to relapse. I've been sober for 20 years. Well, I'm sorry for those people who do, but not me anymore. Anytime you kind of take your sobriety for granted or even become a little arrogant about it, that's when you're most susceptible. When you believe someone like me couldn't possibly relapse, relapse, <laughs> right. then you put yourself in danger. I'm not saying that you will. I don't think relapse is, is inevitable. I'm not convinced that you know it makes a lot of sense to say relapsing is part of the disease. I mean, there's all kinds of medical discussions about that. But to, to think that you are absolutely positively immune to circumstances changing in your life where picking up again might seem somewhat better then that is a kind of self-deception. So it's it's kind of a happy medium, right? You can't always be assuming, oh, look, here comes a temptation. You're constantly ducking and things like that. You have to be able to walk forward, but you also always need to keep things in your peripheral vision. You need to be, I feel like um, I'm lecturing a child. You need to be aware of your circumstances, <laughs> which you do. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And 
And it's, it's funny the example that you use, cause I feel like I've had similar thoughts in the last few years of like, well, look where I'm at, look what I have, look what I've accomplished. You know, like you're saying, everything's going my way. One drink wouldn't hurt. One joint wouldn't hurt. And then, and then I have to like pause and think about that and think, you know, that it's not going to be one. Cause I was having this conversation with my wife a couple nights ago. Cause she'll occasionally drink a glass of wine at night and it doesn't bother me. And I said, how do you only have one glass? How can you go to the refrigerator, get a, get the bottle out, get your wine glass, pour one glass, put the bottle back in the fridge, drink that one glass and then be done. I was like, how is that possible? How do you do that? I, I don't know. She's like, well, that's, I, I wanted one glass. That's all I wanted. I don't want any more beyond that. That's I don't an option? understand that. <laughs> I don't understand that. I'm going to finish the bottle and then I'm going to get another bottle and another and I'm going to keep drinking until I black out or I get arrested. Like, I don't know how to have one. So I have to play that tape forward and realize that my mind tells me I can have that one drink. But I know if I'm being truly honest with myself that I've never in my life had one drink. That's not a thing for me. I think I yeah. might have had one drink when I was like 10 and I couldn't get more but I can't have one. That's just not, that's not in the cards for me. That's not possible for me to have one drink. Yeah. And so if, if you know that, if, if you, you know, are, you've got the scales and you're trying to balance on the one hand, it seems like only one drink, but on the other hand, if you know this about yourself, what important self-knowledge to have, how important is it for you to trust yourself that you know yourself? And coming to know ourselves is one of the greatest gifts in recovery. We come to belong to ourselves in a kind of way which we never could when we were active in our addictions because we belong to the substances, we belong to other people's opinions or views of us or their expectations, or we belong to a view. It was so interesting to hear you say, oh, you know, be a failure, that I think one of the early casualties of developing an addiction is a loss of trust in ourselves that that we can do good, right, healthy things. And we no longer trust ourselves. And so if we can't trust ourselves, it becomes a vicious cycle where we always assume we're going to screw something up. And we always judge ourselves, even for the slightest little mistake, as being a total failure. You know, it's not like, oh, I just made a mistake. It, this happened because I'm a total failure. We start to tell these stories about ourselves to explain or justify, not to rationalize or to deny, but to make sense of why is it that we kept doing these things when we always knew what was going to happen. I always knew what was going to happen. When I started drinking in the late afternoon, I knew that I would drink until I was in a blackout. Somehow I'd stumble home. I'd wake up early the next morning and think, oh, look, it's a new day. And then suddenly the headache and the nausea and that horrible hangover would hit me. But I didn't let that count as information for the longest time. It was only when I started to engage in a kind of really important self-examination to be able to say, here are my patterns. We have patterns when we were using. We have patterns in recovery. Human beings are pattern sense-making beings. It's what we do, but they become so familiar to us. We don't pay as much attention to them as perhaps we should. Yes, I, I agree a hundred percent and you're so right. 
you, you kind of mentioned there towards the beginning about the discovery that Bill Wilson's concept of the higher power was not the end all be all. And you mentioned somebody else and I, I can't remember his name. I, I would love to hear a little bit more about how you got to that place and then how you got to write the book and how all that came about. Oh, well, it's, it's, I like knowing history. So I'm an academic and I'm a philosopher by training, but I, I love history and I like knowing where concepts come from. And so many people with good reason assume that it was Bill Wilson who coined the term higher power. I mean, he certainly popularized it um, mm -hmm. and put it right in the heart of the 12 steps. And he added a qualifier on there, God, as we understood him. So higher power gets defined as God and as we understood him and who that we is were really people who were brought up in a Christian tradition because AA really was um, started by white professional men, mostly from some kind of Christian Protestant background. That That's just part of the origin story of AA. But I had been reading about the founding of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I came upon a reference to American philosopher and psychologist William James, who lived between 1842 and 1910. And Bill Wilson says a couple of places, and I regard that great American psychologist philosopher William James as a co-founder of AA, and I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. Why would he think that? So I did a little digging, and this is pretty well known in AA history, that Bill Wilson had read one of William James's great books called The Varieties of Religious Experience after he had his final drying out at the Towns Hospital in 1934. And Bill Wilson tells the story that he was back in this well, drunk tank. He was an asylum for the inebriate, trying to sober up yet again, and he had failed many times. And so there he is. It's 1934. It's around Christmas time. And he throws up his hands and yells, you know, if there is a God, you know, I'll do anything to have this desire to drink be taken from me. And Bill tells the story that he felt this great gust, not of wind, but of spirit, and his desire to drink was lifted. And so, wow, how profound is that? And not soon after, he thinks, oh, my gosh, am I, am I losing my mind here? Am I going crazy? Because we know that hallucinations can come with alcohol withdrawal. And one of the drugs used to treat alcohol withdrawal was belladonna, which can itself concern or cause hallucinations. But Bill Wilson had a friend who visited him shortly afterwards and brought him this William James book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, which is all about the profound spiritual experiences of individuals. So it's a book about how it is that some people come to have spirituality burn as an acute fever or have spiritual impulses as the, this is a phrase from 1902, have spiritual impulses as the habitual center of personal energy. And so it's all these stories where William James is trying to make sense of the fact that spiritual impulses are part of human nature. Bill um, William James wanted to look at a large swatch of humanity to see what they look like. So William James talked about Buddhist perspectives, Muslim perspectives. He said what we Christians call God. And he had all these other examples of what could be a higher power. So he said, what we Christians call God, and it feels like there's a God who reaches in and gives us a good little shake or removes our desire to drink or fundamentally alters how we are in the world. And William James says, 
we're not licensed to believe that it's a God. If you believe it's a Christian God, it's because you come from a Christian background. And he said, what else might be higher, higher and friendly powers that each of us can either reach outward or inward? And he said it could be things like ideals of truth and beauty. It could be an enthusiasm for humanity, a sense of human decency. It could be patriotism. It could be moral principles. It could be a belief that sort of everything is divine. Nature is divine. And he said, and it could be just a better version of yourself. He said, anything larger will do as a higher power if it enables you to take a change, a step to change, to become willing to change. So what William James said is that higher powers don't do anything to you. Higher powers enable you to do something. That's a very different higher power from what we get in Alcoholics Anonymous. So my hope in writing this book, Higher and Friendly Powers, was not just to correct history, but to really return that concept of higher and friendly powers, and it was plural, to its original, more expansive, inclusive, and inviting sense so that the next person like me who goes to an AA meeting and can't swear him, her, themselves with that notion of God can say, but wait a minute, higher powers can be anything. It just, I can be continuous with it. It doesn't have to be this God and this God, there's no God that's going to do anything to me. There may be a God, there may not be a God. William James says, we're not licensed to make that distinction, that decision. But what we can do is create or find our own higher powers. Every single one of us has he says the right, but he means you can have the willingness to believe. That's all a higher power is in some ways. It helps to animate a willingness to believe. And for those of us who struggle with addiction, maybe it's a willingness to believe that I don't have to do this maybe for the next 10 minutes or the next 10 hours or the next 24 hours. So faith for William James is just a willingness to live on possibility and maybes where the results aren't guaranteed in advance. So faith isn't in a God that does something to you. Faith is just in a willingness to believe that something that maybe had seemed impossible for you, for me, is maybe possible. And so there's nothing weird about faith. Faith pervades every aspect of our life. And so it kind of demystifies faith in a kind of way. So that's what I'm trying to do is to help people authorize themselves to figure out what's a higher power for them and to figure out how are they willing to live on a maybe of trying sobriety and living in recovery. Simple as that. I love that you did that research and, and found where he had credited, what did you call him? It wasn't co-founder, but it was like the, that, that Bill Wilson said, William James really, even though he had been dead at that point for 25 years, should be regarded as a co-founder of AA. Okay. I couldn't remember if you had called him a, a co-founder or if there was a- That's what Bill Wilson called him. Okay. Okay. I, that, that's so interesting though. And, and you did the research and found his books. And then I, I, it's interesting to me though, that, that Bill Wilson took it and made it so much more narrow of a perspective. But I think that that's kind of in our human nature and- you know, I've had those thoughts before that you were mentioning as well. Like, I think the reason that I have the con- this particular concept of God is because I 
grew up in the United States and in the South. And, you know, it's the Bible belt. And I think that that's the reason that I have the view of God that I have is just because of my upbringing. And I've had that thought before of like, well, how do I know that this is the God, you know, because if I grew up in India, I would have a different belief of who God is. Or if I grew up in, you know, China, I would have a different view on who God is. So I think a lot of a lot of the religious ideas that we have are based on where we grow up and what we're surrounded by. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. And so Bill Wilson grew up in Vermont, kind of in a, in a Calvinist tradition. Mm-hmm. So what William James says is we all have our own over-beliefs. Over-beliefs are the, the frameworks, the big concepts that help us to organize our experience and to make sense of our lives. So if you grew up believing there's a God and this God has this kind of nature and here's what the relationship between God and humans is like, it makes total sense. That's your interpretive lens, right? Everything is going to get filtered through that. But what's interesting is in varieties, William James is very careful to remind his, these were originally given as lectures and then he published them, to remind his listeners and readers to check their own overbeliefs. You know, be careful not to, to not to just impose your beliefs over these experiences and always interpret them in this kind of way. And that's, I think, a, I can say this, a mistake, an understandable mistake that Bill Wilson made. That concept of God worked for him. And William James would be the first one to stand up and applaud that. But just because that concept works for Bill or works for Bob or who whomever else, it doesn't mean it's going to work for Brett and Peck. And that makes so much sense. So much sense. And I love, I love the way that you stated that and the, the, you're putting you're putting more intelligent words to describe the feelings and some of the thoughts and ideas that I've had that I didn't know how to quite conceptualize and explain the way that you're explaining it. So I appreciate that. Oh, well, well, thanks for saying that. I mean, I have found people who struggle with addiction to be some of the most philosophical people that I know, some of the deepest thinkers that I know, because in many ways we have confronted and continued to live one of the most basic questions in human existence. Shall I live or shall I die? I mean, many of us kind of stood, you know, Bill Wilson said, we stood at that turning point. We stood at that point where we know we could have gone left and continued with our use, or we could go right and we don't know what the heck exactly is going to be to the right. We know it's the left, but we make the choice to go. We have to act because if we don't, we know what's going to happen. and. And that is a very William James-like notion of when you've got to go either left or right, when you're forced to choose and it's a momentous decision, James says, you've got a right to believe beyond where the evidence takes you. So that's what I think living in recovery is. So I know for me that I had stopped and started numerous times. I was really good at stopping, but I was better at starting. And, um, you know, the, the final time that I stopped, I mean, knock wood that it's the final time I decided to treat it as a gigantic experiment. 
I, I thought, well, I know what happens. Usually I can stop. I can stop for months on end. And I would tell myself, that proves I don't have a problem. And I started again, <laughs> never counted as evidence. That was a convenient or an inconvenient fact. So I just knocked that off to the side. I didn't know what life would be like if I tried not to drink. I didn't know what it was going to be like. I knew what it would look like if I did. I didn't know what it was going to look like. But I decided to go down that path not knowing, one, how long I would be on it, and two, where it was going to take me. But I had to kind of have the willingness to find out. And I think that willingness is really crucial, that if we're not willing to try to do things differently, we will never do things differently. And that's not to say that willing equals willpower. Stopping drinking is not a matter of willpower in any simple sense. But if I don't have a willingness to try to have the rubber meet the road to, to, to actually do something, willingness is always attached to action. Where, where there's no action, it just becomes wishful thinking. Mm. Or it just becomes you know, desiring something but not doing your part to make it become actual. I love that, the willingness. And then if you don't have the action... Yeah, wishful thinking. And I think that we've all been in a place where we've had that wishful thinking. I, I know for me that I've had those moments as well before I found recovery of, of looking at other people's lives that seemed so successful and so pleasant from the outside and having those wishful thoughts of, I wish I could be like that person or I wish I could have what they had, you know, that covet. Mm -hmm coveting what they had and and you know even even people that i would see that were drinking and using that seemed to somehow hold it all together or maybe you know maybe they maybe they didn't have that addiction and they could be those people that could use on the weekend and then go back to a normal life and being envious of that of like how can how can i get to a place where i can get drunk on the weekend and then go back to work on monday and be okay and not being mm -hmm. able to find that solution <laughs> Oh, I think so. And and I think that kind of wishing, 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 wishing oftentimes is coupled with if only thinking. Mm. Well, if only my boss weren't such a jackass, if only my partner were more supporting, if only my job paid better, if only my parents weren't so demanding, if only my kids didn't have so many expectations. And you completely construct a story in your head that you don't have any agency that you, you there's nothing that you can do oh poor you you're just a victim of all these external circumstances instead of being able to do a good survey of well how am i the one making my life absolutely batshit crazy mm. you know why am i in trouble with the boss oh it's because i missed several days in a row and didn't meet this deadline or you know why are my parents being demanding? Oh, because I promised I would do something and I didn't. So, you know, that if only thinking is a way to punt responsibility down the road, down the field. Um, and it it becomes debilitating, but, but it becomes habitual too. I mean, if you're locked into the if only thinking, you, you completely lose, lose your way because you're always being buffeted by external factors or so you tell yourself mm. poor you poor me yeah yeah and i i think we as as addicts and alcoholics fall into that i think that's part of the mindset that we have and i think that 
you know, it took me a while to realize that. And I think it's kind of, and I don't want to offend anybody, but I think it's kind of a childish way to look at life is to point the blame at everybody else. And like you're saying, poor me, I'm the victim. But I had those same thoughts too in the beginning where, you know, it's, it's other people's faults. You know, I, oh, poor me, I can't get this job that I want because I'm on probation. Oh, poor me. I, you know, all these, all these different life circumstances that I'm saying, oh, poor me. But if I actually turn and look at, look at myself with some self honesty, I can look and see, well, I'm the one that got arrested. And that's because of the decisions that I made. And I'm, you know, I'm living back in my parents' house because I can't financially support myself and they're being kind enough to let me live with them. So I'm not homeless. Like, but I'm looking at it with the lens of poor me, you know, I can't believe my luck. This is so terrible. If, if I wasn't in this situation, I could, you know, like you're saying the if onlys, but very much a childish perspective of, you know, poor me and all the world's out to get me and everybody's against me and there's no way I can ever succeed. And, and I think recovery helps us have that mindset shift of beginning to look at the wreckage of our past and beginning to, see our role in it. And, and it was a scary moment for me when I realized that 99.9% of the things that are going wrong in my life are a direct result of me and my terrible decisions and the things that I did. Yeah. And I always say, and we get to do that hard work. We get to do Mm. it. I, I remember when I felt this shift, like I can't drink anymore. So, you know, I was resentful. Why does he get to drink? Why does he, you know, why do they, you know, always looking at why others. So, you know, I was in that victim role. Like, why can't I, you know, call the ambulance? Poor me. Um, but then when I reached a point where I thought, I don't have to drink anymore. And I get to do all these incredible things. Whatever pleasures there were in drinking or, or using other drugs. You have to acknowledge there were some pleasures and maybe we drank the fun right out of everything or maybe, you know, it became not fun anymore. But, you know, for a while there could have been some good fun pleasure there. But to be able to say that those pleasures pale in comparison to what I have now and to genuinely feel surprised by what brings me joy. I mean, So I'm trying to be on TikTok <laughs> I'm about the oldest person on TikTok. Let me tell you that. Um, but to hear so many, in, in particular, young people say, oh, my God, I was so worried that I would never have fun again. Because particularly for young people, fun is, you know, like, Brett, what you were talking about, oh, getting ripped on the weekend. You know, yeah, you've got some responsibilities, but you're having fun. You're, you're doing all this. You're young and you're carefree. And the worry that, well, if I can't drink or use it, I am not going to have any fun anymore. And I just think about the way that, using alcohol or other drugs is really regarded as a rite of passage. And so I'm on a college community where everyone thinks that, well, that's part of what it means to go to college is to get drunk and do dumb things. Not like everything is totally animal house movie worthy, but you know, that's just what people like us, our age bracket get to do. Mm -hmm. And to hear young people genuinely say, but all my friends drink and I'm never going to have any fun again. And it's going to be a social death because I won't have any friends again, are real concerns. And, you know, to, to now as an older person to say someday, but to say, you know, we get to live our way to new answers because we're asking new questions. We live our way 
to those answers. And, you know, the, the poet Rilke said, you know, the point is to live the questions now. And perhaps someday, gradually, without noticing, we will have lived the answers. So I can't point to a definite time in my life of recovery where I say that was a distinct turning point. But we, we do have those moments where we come to realize that I'm not, I'm not like that anymore, and I'm so glad. And to maybe even feel some empathy for yourself and some compassion for yourself, our younger selves that we maybe thought we were making the best decisions we could at a time, and it turned out we were wrong. I mean, if, if it's really hard to get self-trust back, I think it's almost as hard or harder to get self-forgiveness back. I've had to learn how to forgive my younger self for so long. I just would condemn myself for things that I had done, opportunities I had wasted. But to now look back on it and say, my word, I was a raging alcoholic in high school. I, I, I was doing the best I could at that point. And same thing in college. And, you know, so what if I wasn't, you know, miss magna cum laude, I I stayed alive when a lot of other raging alcoholics may have died. I know I almost drank myself to death. I know that for a fact. I almost ruptured my spleen from drinking so much. That's the success. I can celebrate that and be kinder to myself now of what was a 19-year-old doing drinking herself to death? Really? So to, to have some empathy and compassion and forgiveness for ourselves, I mean, there's nothing richer than that. And and that openness to possibility that life can bring good things. Because it can. Sure, it can bring terrible things, but we'll have better resources for dealing with them. And I just went on a, a rant on TikTok about, you know, in popular culture, why is it when there's a character in recovery and something difficult happens, the next scene has that person sitting at the bar, staring at the bottles or holding the joint or holding the syringe as if our recovery is that fragile. And as I've said, people do relapse, but we don't always relapse. That's not always our first move, that there are all kinds of other things that we can do. And we learn how to do them by being honest with ourselves and being connected to others. We get to do that. I get to do that. I, I can't tell you how full of gratitude I am for that. Man, I could sit here and listen to you talk all day, Peg. I just love I love the way that you take all these concepts and just simplify them and make them so easy to understand and, and digest. And I'm I'm so grateful that you've come on the show today. Uh unfortunately though, we are getting towards the end of the time. So we I would are. love if you could if you could tell us a little bit more about the book where people can find it, Higher and Friendlier Powers. Um, and you'd mentioned TikTok, and I assume you're probably on a few other social media platforms. So if people are interested in reaching out to you or connecting with you, where can they do that? Oh, and, and I love I love hearing from people. So my handle on TikTok is The Sober Philosopher. Um, it, it seemed to be an accurate description for me, and sober doesn't mean serious. I mean, it, it's it's fun. Um, and my website is pegoconnorauthor.com. And you can get Higher and Friendly Powers at Amazon or any other local bookstore. You can order it. And on my website, I've I made a discussion guide because I think we alcoholics and addicts, we can think so well together. That's why I love doing these podcasts, like getting to think along with Brett here. Um, so I made a 
a discussion guide, you know, if, if anyone is reading the book and wants some questions about it. And I'm in the process of making a companion workbook to higher and friendly powers. Um, that can be a standalone as well, because sometimes we just need to sit quietly with our own thoughts. And as a teacher, one of the things that I do is write questions that are meant as invitations and not as judgments and to give give ourselves the opportunity to to think quietly, to look at our own little embattled self and try to imagine what could be different. So, And you can reach me too at peg at pegoconnorauthor.com. And I always do reply. I, I love hearing from people. I, I feel honored that people would write to me. I love that. And I too, I, I, it's so, it's so great when we receive those little messages and we know that somebody out there is listening mm-hmm. to us or reading what we're putting out there. I love getting that feedback and people letting us know that, that somehow we touched their life in some way that yeah. we had some kind of positive impact on them. So I would encourage anybody that's enjoyed this episode, reach out to peg, follow her on social media, same with me. If there's something that you liked about the show, you can find me on social media, send me a message. If there's something you don't like about the show also, I, I am not opposed to positive criticism. So there's that. I don't feel like I say that enough to tell people like, Hey, you can, you know, you can email me or reach out to me on social media. I'm trying to do that more and let people know like, Hey, I'm, I'm a real person behind, behind the mm-hmm. voice. There is a real person. And I would love to have a conversation with anyone that would like to have that conversation. So yeah, thank you. Thank you, Peg, for coming on the show today. I'm, I'm truly honored that we were able to make this happen and that you were willing to come on and, and share some of your knowledge with us and, just so much. I feel like I'm going to end up having to listen to this episode two or three times after I get it all put together. Cause there's just so many different things that we discussed today. And there's so much, I feel like sometimes I get so tunnel vision when I'm doing the interview that then when I listen to it back later, then I'm like seeing all these other things that I didn't even catch the first time. So thank you again for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me on, Brett. I really appreciate it, and I appreciate this podcast, and I appreciate your listeners. Oh, thank you. Peg, thank you again for coming on the show today. And I'm sitting here a couple weeks later going through and editing the episode, and there's so many things that I missed when we were talking. And, man, there's just so much in this episode, and, and I'm so grateful for your knowledge. So thank you again for being on the show. You've been listening to Recovery Survey. If you got anything out of today's episode, I'd ask you to please leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us at recoverysurvey.com. You can listen to all of our episodes on the website as well as connect with us on social media where you can get previews for upcoming episodes. Recovery Revolution Podcast Network.